the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary, covering monetary, economic, and geopolitical news events. The checks that are going to have to be written to smooth over a number of these issues are very large checks. So does that spell higher rates of inflation as we head into 2022? We redefined the weightings that go into CPI. Statistically, inflation is going away. <laughs> but, but my reality, your reality, the reality of every other American who's paying bills will be quite different. The statistics don't matter. The reality faces them every day at the grocery store, the gas pump. And that's what we have to come to terms with. Now here are Kevin Oreck and David McIlvaney. Welcome to the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary. I'm Kevin Oreck along with David McIlvaney. David, there, there are so many times when I wish the mic was on before we're actually recording. And this just happened. We were just now talking and it's like, wow. This should be part of the show. And, <laughs> and so I, I love our conversations. I just have to say how natural it is. I was even telling my son this. I said, you know, because he's known you all his life. And I said, you ought to ask Dave. He always brings something new to the table. And we were just now talking about pragmatism versus idealism, the gold standard versus being able to print money. And let's just go with this. Let's just go with this because honestly, I think a lot of times we think that uh, this is all well-defined, like politics and banking. Okay, today, you and I were talking just a little bit about it's not necessarily who you elect that makes the rules. It's who controls the flow of money. And, and I'd like to talk about that a little bit today. And, you know, some of the behind-the-scenes politics that occur, it ain't Biden making the decisions right now. Let's just face it. No, and, and I, you know, we had January 6th come and go. And, you know, certainly another opportunity to reflect on the drama and the political rancor of our age. I was in the airport yesterday, stuck between Fox in one ear and CNN on the other, literally two big screens, 20 feet apart. And so I, you're in I the get, Dallas, Dallas airport, yeah, I was in the yeah. Dallas airport yeah. in the Centurion Lounge. And so I've, I've got these two. And I, I, I kid you not, there was almost a revolution occurring in my mind. As I'm getting bombarded by unqualified statements from the right, unqualified statements from the left. And the facts don't matter. The facts don't matter. Right. What matters is, is more heat than light. We're not after insight. We're after conflict because it raises viewership. And it, it's just, it's wow. amazing to me that mainstream media is today loving the political rancor. And I think there will be more of it as we head towards November. Well, you know, okay, so let's broach a subject right now that'll immediately get us canceled. Okay, and cancel culture. Go for it. January 6th, I was told that it was going to be like an earth shattering day by the mainstream media. They really wanted me to be upset about the annual anniversary of January 6th. Where'd that go? Gosh, I, I forgot what date it was until that night. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think any serious student of history would look and say, you know, we could consider the, the main inputs for an insurrection or a coup. And I, I guess what was there? Almost nothing. Um, what we did have is, is the media outlets covering and expecting uh, a great to-do. But there was one piece from the Wall Street Journal, the editorial board, which I thought was very fascinating. Um, they covered the January 2nd, on January 2nd, a series of maneuvers which were coordinated by Elizabeth Warren. And this really is more the marks of 
a coordinated overthrow. And this is, again, this is, you look at the last few weeks of December, you get the coordinated efforts of, of Warren's protege, uh, Rohit Chopra, who runs the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And he succeeded in ousting the chair of the FDIC, mm-hmm. uh, Jillian mm-hmm. McWilliams. She's gone. She personally cataloged the saga in the Wall Street Journal earlier on in December, describing the political efforts to strip her of authority before her term ended in June of 2023. So just a, a really fascinating set of machinations inside the financial bowels, if you will. Chopra only recently confirmed by the Senate went for the juggler with McWilliams. And, you know, it's typically the chair, and that's McWilliams, who sets the the agenda for the board. That's plain and simple. It's always been that way. Chopra is is on the four-member board, but he's not the chair. She is. And the efforts were to strip McWilliams of that power. And here we have McWilliams choosing to resign December 31st, effective sometime in February. And you're um, saying this was orchestrated or, or in the Wall Street Journal. This was orchestrated from the start. Fascinating. Again, I would encourage you to read the article, the Warren Biden bank heist, because it, it reminded me of the book that we read a couple years ago, Fragile by Design. Um, you may say, why is this of consequence to the markets or of concern to me as an investor? Because yeah, this is really nothing more than internecine technocratic squabbling. And does that really have any direct interest for the average Joe investor? Well, it's the guy who can give the loans that's uh, the guy who makes the rules. So, so yeah, I guess it does if that's what's been heisted. Yeah, and I suppose there's there's certain areas of technocracy that, that are of little interest, and that would be ordinarily, you know, true. The squabbles just don't matter. Um, it's politics as usual amongst bureaucrats. But this is credit. This is credit. And this mm-hmm. is where credit flows are influenced. So to, to quote the Wall Street Journal, speaking of Senator Warren, she may have lost the 2020 Democratic primaries to Mr. Biden, but she has colonized the government's financial regulatory offices. Mm. So they control the flow. Exactly. And to yeah. quote further, what do the Warren cadres hope to accomplish? One clear goal is greater influence over the allocation of credit using regulation to squeeze financing for fossil fuels will, will be a priority. Bank mergers are a political target. Regulatory approval can be exploited as a tolling station to coerce money for local communities, to use Mr. Chopra's euphemism for progressive political groups. Huh. So, you know, your dad used to have a phrase <laughs> when he would talk uh, up front. He'd say, you want to know what the golden rule is? He says, he who owns the gold makes the rules. But, you know, the truth of the matter, in a fiat economy, he who owns the credit or controls the credit makes the rules. That's the new, at least from the top, that's the new gold as far as politics goes, isn't it? It, it was an interesting insight. It was an interesting insight with Warren lost the 2020 Democratic primaries, but is colonizing the government's financial regulatory Hmm. offices. Um, She has her former staffer as the deputy director of the White House National Economic Council. She has another aide that's now deputy treasury secretary. Uh, Yet another runs the Federal Trade Commission and one more still that's assistant treasury secretary for financial institutions. In January of 2019, we spoke with Charles Calamiris. He was uh, is co-author of Fragile by Design, right. The Political Origins of Banking Crisis and Scarce Credit. And it was a critical look at how politics leverages banking and credit distribution 
for the downstream benefits it confers to the constituency groups <laughs> and in turn, of course, those who are in, in power. So in doing so, it often creates crises. And that's why the title of the book, Fragile by Design, it's no accident when you have a Wall Street crash or a global financial crisis tied to some sort of a banking conundrum or banking debacle, it, it, it actually was understood to be problematic and, and there was a trade-off and the trade-off was intriguing to the politician. So as the motive to move credit was along political and financial and economic lines, uh, so we, we, we have, we have this opportunism, one part carrot, one part stick. Mm -hmm. If you control who has access to credit, you can help some, you can punish others. And it ends up being not just about banking, but ultimately about political agendas and control of the narrative. You know, I, I read a quote by Voltaire and I thought it was really accurate. He says, you want to know who's in control? Figure out who you can't criticize. And. That's really the truth. You know, you want to know who's in control, figure out who you can't criticize. Now, and, and that's isn't that the case today? If you say one negative word about Xi Jinping, good luck. Right. You may find yourself at a, a re-education camp with other Uyghurs or I mean, it's fascinating to me that there is no opportunity for free speech without grave consequence. Well, like the American Heart Association, definitely don't tell people that the vaccine might increase heart disease because uh, you'll get de-twittered uh, if that's a word. Or, right? or maybe lose your medical license. So the Warren Biden bank heist, again, that's the article from the Wall Street Journal uh, going back to January 2nd. And it's lingered on my mind over the last several weeks, bringing up many of the critical issues we discussed with Calamiris. Hmm. And I've mentioned previously that bibliographies are, to me, a little bit like the briar patch. Feel free to just toss me in. Your library is a bibliography. Uh, it's a bibliography uh, after bibliography. It just it, it's like having children. And so in the front, what? <laughs> in that sense, I think I have enough. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, when it comes to yeah, books, when you go home, I'm not sure I ever will be. Yeah. So Pollock, Alex Pollock was, was, was a, a good guest, too. We yep. brought on to the commentary and out of his bibliography came Fragile by Design. So in hmm. the front of each of my books, I have a reference as to where I found the book. So in Fragile by Design, you've got Alex Pollock. Hmm. In Alex Pollock's book, I'm sure there's a, a reference as to where I found his book, too. What a great idea. That's the thread that sort of shows you how you got there. Yeah. And I think the Pollock conversation was excellent, not to be missed. But Fragile by Design, that was on my reading list. Bank strengths and shortcomings are the predictable consequences of political bargains. This is what Calamira says. Bank strengths and shortcomings are the predictable consequences of political bargains. And those bargains are constructed by society's fundamental political institutions. Hmm. He goes on to say that modern banking is best thought of as a partnership between the government and a group of bankers, a partnership that is shaped by the institutions that govern the distribution of power in the political system. Hmm. Hmm. You remember when governments used to have to go to banks to borrow? That was the whole thing with Rothschild, right? Rothschild, through the last few hundred years over in Europe, you know, he actually started as a coin collector, which is interesting, a numismatist, and, and he had gold. And so you had governments that had to come. If they're going to fight a war or whatever, they'd go to the bank. But there was a separation. The banker was controlling, in a way, the government. 
What we're saying now, it looks to me like there's a power play, Dave. It sounds to me like the government is finding a way of controlling the banker. Yeah, it's fascinating just to think of the development of government and, and, and sort of bureaucracies as we know them today. Sovereign defaults were much more common back in the 16th, 17th, 18th century because you didn't have a refined form of taxation. Hmm. And so sovereign defaults would occur when a monarch would go to a bank, as, as you said, and borrow money. And then when they couldn't pay it back, they would default. And so there was a change in sort of the structure of finance as we moved away from monarchy and towards democracy. And the more democratized things became, actually, there was also the opportunity for an increase in taxation. Mm. We have less sovereign defaults as time goes on, as we sort of develop politically, but other things that come into play. Uh, certainly, there was issues in terms of monetary stability, and we'll get to that in a minute. But I, I don't, I don't read all books cover to cover. But this one, 500 pages, fragile by design. It was, I, I can't put this down. I, I'm reading. looking at it on the table in front of your mic. Okay. This thing is worn out. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, the choosing winners and losers has been a theme on this program before. Remember Carmen Reinhardt. Certainly that yeah. came from a candid conversation with uh, Dr. Reinhardt. Uh, but fragile by design illustrates how the choosing of winners and losers is a political process and banks are merely the conduits of getting credit to the right people and there's there's some agreement that takes place there there's some financial benefits which accrue to the bank which is why they're involved and yeah what this particular study showed was how choosing winners and losers has a structural stability cost attached to it and those costs are largely disregarded as a higher purpose is served. Mm -hmm. and, and that, again, is a political purpose, the maintenance of power. So champions of, of political sponsorship in the credit markets, implicitly, they do undermine democracy. They do undermine meritocracy, and they add sort of a component of plutocratic redistributional idealism. Okay, I mean, so let's get nostalgic here for a second. All right. Okay. So the commentary started in the spring of 2008. That was a really critical time in America because... If we go back to 2007, we had started to see cracks in the system that were actually, they came from years and years of giving people loans who the government knew could never pay those loans back. Okay. They, they could not pay it back. We called it the subprime crisis, but nobody really knew how bad it was going to be in 2007. And Bear Stearns came out and they offered $400 million worth of bad debt. Uh, what did they call it? I can't remember what they called it. It was, uh, uh, what it was was something they actually wished they never had shown through the curtain. So when no one came in and bought it, then they pulled it back off. But you and I talked about that in 2007. And I remember talking to a couple of clients saying, hey, something's up. All these bad loans that have been given out, the chickens are coming home to roost. Well, we in 2008 started the commentary and were able to walk through the global financial crisis. But wasn't it caused by some of the th same things we're talking about right now, where money was directed to people to buy houses? It sounded like a noble enterprise, but these were people who had absolutely no income possibility 
of being able to pay those mortgages over time. Well, it's fascinating that you have a parallel with China as well. The migration from the countryside to the city and the the building of, of cities. And you, certainly in 2008 and 2009, it looked like they would be ghost cities. Some of them still are. Some of have been have been filled. And in cases where the construction is now old enough and the quality was at the time of the build so poor, you're now seeing some of those buildings torn down, and I'm sure they'll be replaced just to keep the, the, the economic engine turning. But we had our subprime lending crisis, and they have their equivalent of a credit vortex right now. It's right happening now. Yeah. as we speak. But is the, the exploration of the subprime lending crisis is a fascinating one. Not as an expression of Wall Street greed. And I think that's, you know, when we think back to that and we think of countrywide and we think of, you know, ninja loans and we think of all the things that were happening that seemed so irresponsible, reckless and driven by private corporations. The sub story, the subtext is, is actually that there's more to it than Wall Street greed because, mm. you know, that's rarely in question. You can count on that. <laughs> um, but it really was a consequence of, Bank consolidation, bank consolidation, which was supported by urban activists mm. who would support mergers if and only if they met a good citizen criteria. It was a sort of colonization like what we just now what you were talking about in the Wall Street Journal article currently. Yep. So only banks could only merge if they were willing to guarantee credit flows to various constituency groups. Mm. So mergers had the quid pro quo of promised lending to underserved communities. Mm -hmm. So yeah, again, before you start saying, oh, well, that's, I mean, that's a good idea. We should do that. Everyone should own a house. Before you jump on that sort of fairness for all and social justice wagon, because it does sound nice. Remember that bankers have to appraise risk and they have to determine the degree to which depositors' money is going to be returned with interest. It's not their money they're lending out. They're lending out depositors' money. So they have to weigh risk. And yet they're being told that to grow it as, as an organization, they will be hobbled unless they start lending to unqualified borrowers. So the risk calculation gets downgrade when the political bargain is on the table. Mm-hmm. Do you see what I'm talking about? Yeah, sure. and, and thus our banking system becomes more fragile. And yes, it is by design. So they look right across the table and they say, lower your standards, lower your standards. We have a voter base here. Lower your standards. Right. So so we circle back around to uh, Ms. Warren. We circle back around to the colonization of your um, financial overseers. And this is, I think, what we're getting ready for in the 2022, 23, 24 timeframes is the very politically directed credit which will help some people and hurt others. The new golden rule. Yeah. He who controls the flow makes the rules. Yeah. One of the crucial steps going back in time to the subprime crisis, uh, one of the crucial steps was the lowering of underwriting standards on mm-hmm. mortgages uh, that could be included in Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac portfolios. And that allowed for banks to jumpstart the lending and origination process. But ultimately, they didn't have to hold the paper on their balance sheets. Mm-hmm. They didn't take the long-term credit risk in the portfolio of loans. They just passed them on to the government-sponsored entities. Right. They, they would just 
sell them away right away, and then they were repackaged, right? So you really couldn't even see what was inside of it. And that's where Wall Street got creative in terms of the, the distribution to a broader and global audience. Mm. So it was it was our political bargaining within the banking industry, which created the throughput for loans that ultimately went into packages, which were sold all over the world and gave us not just a U.S. banking crisis, but the global financial crisis. So the, the fundamental bargains which underpinned the flows of credit and led to the GSE crisis, that is the government-sponsored entity crisis, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac crisis, 2007 to 2009, they were in motion actually as early as 1992. Well, wow. that was when Clinton was elected. Yeah, so you, you've got the GSE Act, and, and really it continued to build ahead of steam from 92 to 2007. To quote again from Calamiris, once again, the devil's in the details, but one cannot escape the conclusion that the decisions made by regulatory agencies were driven by the logic of politics. Huh. And, you know, look at how HUD lending mandates expanded after the 92 election. Mm -hmm. That's a big part of the story because they, they had these categories that had to be filled. Special affordable. Special affordable meant very, very low income homes. That segment of loans within the GSEs was increased from 1% of all loans to 12%. Hmm. And the quote-unquote underserved communities was raised to a target of 21%. So by the time Clinton left office, those two categories, special affordable and underserved communities, comprised over 50% of all Fannie and Freddie loans. Well, and those loans were considered AAA, AA, whatever. I mean, they were considered the best of loans as far as uh, the secondary investor. It, what you're talking about really is the implicit government guarantee, which covered them over <laughs> like like a white cloth over 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 a dirty face. So they like, knew ah. they had their back. It's like yeah. a lot of this stuff. The government's got our back. Don't worry. Yeah. So by 2001, two out of three loans in the Fannie and Freddie portfolio that were coming in were in these categories. You're, okay, so special affordable, special affordable and, under, and underserved, underserved communities. communities. Two out of three? Yeah, so the FHA was equally complicit in building in subsidies, creating weaknesses within the system uh, when it capitulated to Clinton in his administration's pressure to lower down payments. They specifically pressured FHA to lower down payments to 3%. Wow. Yeah. Again, so you you go back to ninety two. You go back to the GSE Act, which allowed for a reconfiguration of the balance sheet for these GSEs, where they could have two and a half cents of capital for every dollar, or two dollars and fifty cents of capital for every hundred dollars in lending. That's forty x leverage. Wow. It's forty times leverage, which was being built into the system. You could say, yeah, yeah, it was fragile by design. Forty x leverage with an implicit government guarantee. What's not to love? about the expansion of credit. And of course, we know that credit and money are almost indistinguishable today. So, so what's what, not to love about the expansion of money in the system on a 40X basis? And what you're saying is this is happening again. This Wall Street Journal article from January 2nd is saying at this point, you've got political distribution, let's call it, okay, of the banking system to the political interests that are at hand. It's a combination of things. It's the fiscal flows, which are already highly political, and, and it's and the, the monetary flows, flows yeah. and, and then the credit flows, which will continue to be political. So we return to the coup of 22. 
The real coup of 2022, as deterioration of political momentum continues back in D.C., and it's evidenced by the stalling of legislative efforts, a free fall of support for the Biden administration in the polls, you know, now coming in at around 33 percent approval, some of the lowest ratings you've seen in presidential history at this stage in the game. And you've got a skilled political operative wasting no time, sure. wasting no opportunity in fortifying the means of credit creation and distribution. I mean, we mentioned a few already. And then there are the new Fed nominees. You've got Sarah Raskin. You've got Lisa Cook. You've got Philip Jefferson. And these are the Fed nominees to join the board. If brought onto the Fed committee, it would make the committee certainly the most diverse ever across gender and racial lines. Raskin Spent time at the Fed already and at the Treasury. Cook comes from the, the economics department at Michigan State University. Jefferson's at Davidson College. And these are all reputable and respected economists. But yes, they're also of a more progressive bent. So I think you can see where I'm going, I think. Mm. I'm just thinking about it. I'm, I'm, I've got this vision of all these scenes that we saw from January 6th of last year. This was a quieter January 6th. But this is far more powerful, isn't it? I mean, this is the storming of the Capitol and everything else just simply by replacing certain people who won't play ball. It becomes you're appointing the people who will determine who gets anything and who gets nothing. Mm. So, again, who's at the Treasury? Who's at the Fed? Who's at the FDIC? Who's on the Presidential Economic Council? When you start stacking the deck in your favor in such a way, you know, what you're basically lining up to do is then say, what is our agenda? Is it climate change? Is it inclusion? Is it a variety of other hobby horses that are at the receiving end of credit in 2022? And we're not talking about, oh, I need a loan for $10,000. This will be trillions of dollars delivered. Trillions of dollars delivered. Okay, so let me ask a question that's on the minds of a lot of students. And not just 2022, but stretch it out through the end of the Biden first term. Could one of the hobby horses be to get the vote of the student that's deeply in debt? Of course. And, and, and in that respect, you are talking about vote gathering from among students in exchange for the extinguishing of student debt. Again, it's an application of credit. It's a fiscal decision. Someone will pay that cost and someone will receive the benefit. Is it to small business owners that take up the torch of a green agenda? You know, will, could you have some sort of a subsidy for your business if you're willing to have an electric charger out in front of your business to charge cars? I mean, there's a variety of ways, again, with carrot and stick, where the new credit scheme may be for those who are explicitly anti-fossil fuel hmm. or are pro-immigrant or, I mean, you name it, this is carrot and stick used to shape the political landscape. But frankly, it's no different than what we've already seen in the last series of decades. And when we started talking, we, we started talking about the change over the last few hundred years where monarchs would go and get money from banks. And you're talking about sovereign defaults and that type of thing. But now that we do have a form of I would call it democracy in a way, it's populism applied to the vote, too, isn't it? I mean, populism. In the voting side of things, and so we have really changed at this point. The politician doesn't just in an evil way, you know, move money where the voter base is. They have to. If they're going to be reelected, doesn't reelection, a monarch doesn't have to be reelected. A politician does. Well, think about what a representative form of government looked like in the early stages of America where not very many people could vote. And I'm not saying that that's the right way to do things. Right. But it meant that the conversation was along very different lines. Representation for what? Right. 
And, and at this point, it really is a question of how many tax dollars can you bring back to your constituents? So representation today is out of the tax coffers. And that really wasn't the case. 150 years ago. But universal suffrage, we yeah. we now have... So the shift towards voter sensitivity and the prerogative and the voters' prerogatives, that was highlighted by Guilu Garodi in a conversation we had with him years ago on our commentary. Really, after World War II and the move towards universal suffrage, the budget became politicized. Mm-hmm. And I remember when he said that, it never dawned on me, and it was the simple insight that has had ripple effects through so many of my views on things, but the budget became politicized to a greater degree. And with that has come tremendous currency pressures. You've got to be able to print money. That yeah. That's inflation. Inflation is a choice, isn't it? Absolutely. So chapters 11 to 13 in Calamiris that covers inflation as a part of the policy outcomes of bank bargains. And, and I think he does a great job of contrasting what an autocracy faces when they're employing the inflation tax and how difficult it is actually to, on a consistent year over year basis, apply the inflation tax to democracies. Because people will tend to say, ouch, I don't like this, make it stop. And by the way, I don't like the fact that someone has more than I do. Let's tax the rich rather than subject me and us to the inflation tax. No wonder we don't have a gold standard. (laughs) No wonder we don't have a gold standard. You couldn't do this without fiat currency. Yeah, that's important to think about. The, The modern banking system only exists to the degree that it does because of fiat currency. Uh, The global average inflation rate, think of this, in the 19th century, the global average inflation rate was less than 1%. It was 0.7 of a percent for the entire century. The global average inflation rate, less than 1%. Good luck with that today. Notice we've changed our monetary system. We didn't like the, the, the bondage that gold put us in. We didn't like the limitations that it gave us. And so we have today the universalization of fiat and the encouragement of credit distribution. And now you've got politicians who figured out how to control the credit distribution for their benefit, for political gain. Should we be surprised that inflation is more of an issue in the 20th century than in the 19th? No, we've got a different monetary system. It's unhinged. And as we launch into the 21st century, can we expect it to be easily tamed when the political appetite is only seemingly bigger and more desperate by the day. Yes, but your modern monetary theorist or current central banker is going to say, no, Dave, the inflation that we're experiencing right now is transitory. It has to do with COVID. And I'll tell you, I was walking the dog the other day and right across from us lives a general contractor who lives across the street from me. We were talking and I said, how you doing? And he said, well, you know, it's really interesting. I'm busier than I've ever been. I've got a line of customers who want me to do jobs. And he does large commercial projects. He's currently working with a car dealer and uh, building a building there. And he he said, Kevin, I start a project. And he said, usually I have to order parts and, and trusses and, and the things that he uses, you know, a week or two ahead. He says, right now I'm having to order six months ahead. And if it's appliances and you went through this, you guys personally went through this with your appliances and your kitchen remodel. He said, it can be as much as a year and a half for what we need for appliances. So he's got projects that he would have normally finished in six to nine months that are taking two, two and a half years. That's part of this COVID slowdown production, whatever. He said he was in the car dealership that he was working on and he could hear the guys calling. Remember I mentioned last 
last week I have a client who owns a car dealership. Looking for parts. Or just inventory. You know, you can't buy a used car reasonably right now. And he said he could hear these guys calling. They normally would call about a 500-mile circle area. And he says they were calling into Louisiana, out of Colorado. They're just looking for inventory. So going back to a modern monetary theorist, he'd say, well, the inflation that we have right now is based on that. We have production disruptions. We've got transitory. So address that, if you will. Yeah, well, there's part of it that that's a reality. We're dealing with that, as you mentioned, a washing machine that it was ordered January 2021, and yeah. there's still no idea of when it's going to arrive. This so, is for you. Yeah, we've yeah. got a, we've got a gap in our kitchen, and there's more hand hand washing of dishes than usual, and whatever. But you know, we're going over a year now as we pass the one year mark. Wow, um, that's incredible. So post COVID, we have increased the production inefficiencies, and if you look at how globalization has has you know over the last two, three, four decades benefited from a gain in efficiency and prices have benefited from these efficiencies just in time inventory management has meant that nobody had to carry a huge inventory production was going to be quick because it was fast and easy to have everything ready to go slap it together ship it deliver it everybody's happy but it wasn't as resilient as we thought well it wasn't as resilient that's for sure but think about the efficiencies that existed and we've steadily decreased those again all the things that were built up over a 40 to 50 year period now it's in reverse we have production inefficiencies mm-hmm. right and that is i think transformational if you're talking about those production frictions now those inefficiencies are reemerging as global trade grinds ahead inefficiently because of COVID constraints, because of a lack of available parts, because of a slowdown in in, in materials uh, for those parts, because of the unpredictable nature of a labor force who's in one day out the next because of COVID, because of transportation being limited, whether it's trucking or or whatever else. All these things are cost additive. Mm -hmm. And maybe they're transitory. Maybe they're not. The, the worst inflation call by the Fed in 109 years was tied to seeing these as the sold inflation contributors. And I think that's really the key point. Here. Money printing does have something to do with it. Doesn't yeah, it? yeah. Yeah. So we, we do have things that may end up being transitory in terms of these production frictions. Uh, and maybe we say, yeah, but we don't like the vulnerability we had of having a supply chain overseas. Or perhaps if we end up with real conflict in China, we don't like the supply chain in China at all. Well, how do you reconfigure wow. when when most of your finished goods have some piece part or or the finished product itself coming from China? What does the world look like then? Well, all of a sudden, that form of inflation isn't, isn't transitory. The dollar store becomes the hundred dollar store. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and 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 so they're not entirely short term, and they are not the sole contributors. You've got credit creation. And lacks monetary expansion, which also contribute. And as we've highlighted repeatedly, you also have fiscal spending. And that's very inflationary. More politically directed dollar flows, it's already considerable. And that is not transitory as an inflation input because politicians have rediscovered it for the first time since the 1960s. This is a great way to get things done. Let's create an agency. Let's spend a bunch of money. Let's hand a bunch of money out. Well, you said create an agency. Last week, you talked about Biden saying we have a severe shortage. What was that severe shortage of, Dave? Government agencies <laughs> to more effectively redistribute capital. It's, yeah. it, it's an amazing thing. 
So this is the crossroads we're at. As inflation increases and the votes roll through to tax the rich, we're also going to see more interest in and approval for the support of social safety nets. As, as we discussed last week, that's the Biden administration believing there's too few government agencies to carry out the work of public administration, aka redistribution. What we're focused on today in this conversation is how credit flows, those credit flows are not just about organizational structure, um, but credit flows are a tool for redistribution. And then this is how Warren, Elizabeth Warren, has been gathering resources to more effectively manage that redistribution tool. So, Dave, we're in an election year and everybody's talking about, oh, is it going to be red? Is it going to be blue? Which is going to be the wave, you know, the big wave? Is that really just a distraction as to the people who are really pulling the purse strings right now of power? I think those who are aware that the Democrats are not going to do well in this election are already positioning themselves very wisely to capitalize on areas where they can consolidate strength and power. Huh. Almost like they're channeling water. Where's it going to flow when the flood comes? Yeah, we may lose power in the House and Senate, but... But not in the banking community. We're going to tell you how things actually not work. Not for credit. We're going to yeah. cut you off. It's like, you know, you'll be fine, but we did take the oxygen out of the room. Hmm. You'll be fine for a little while. I mean, that's what they want to do is regulate the lifeblood of the financial markets and of the economy and make sure that the people they want to win, win, and the people they want to lose, lose. And again, that's where, again, credit, because we're so credit dependent within our, our financial system and, and, and economy, that's a huge power move. It, it is the coup of 2022. Mm, so you don't really need sufficient votes. No, the takeaway is that even if you can't organize sufficient votes to win the midterm, you can fortify your position in the channels that drive long-term political power at the intersection of credit flows and constituency benefits. And that, that's that's really what Calamiris is, is getting at. The, the more you control who gets what, the more influence you have on the vote count. To quote George Bernard Shaw, a government that robs Peter to pay Paul can always depend on the support of Paul. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's that's a good one to remember. Okay, I want to go back to China, though, because we were seeing cracks in the system in 2006, 2007, 2008. Uh, you might recall, we sent out a CD. Remember what those are? Oh, yeah. Okay, CDs are what you, they were the little round silver things, right? Mm -hmm. We sent out a CD to a bunch of our client base in 2006. It was your dad telling people to get out of real estate because the cracks were showing up and real estate was overvalued. I'll never forget that. I mean, it's great timing. Now, that was in the U.S. markets, yeah, right? Yeah. And but China now. Yeah, China, equally intriguing. You have the unfolding credit debacle in China, the, the preferred source of economic growth over the last several years, actually decades, has been from property development. Up to one third of GDP growth has come from that sector, property A development. third yeah. of, of the entire GDP. Yep. Yeah. And for all the centrally planned credit flows, like our own politically motivated flows, it's fragile. It's fragile by design. How mm. fragile? Mm. You're not seeing adequate coverage of the hemorrhaging that is taking place in the country. Right now, the largest developer in the country, Country Garden is the name of it, has had its debt, uh, if you go back to September of last year, priced at 3%. So, you know, seems like fairly low risk. January 1st, it was up to about 6.6% in mm. terms of the yield. And just since the beginning of the year, 
it's gone from six and change to 12. Wow. So a doubling in interest costs. And, and they're, they're doubling, considered, yeah, doubling. They're, yeah, exactly. They're considered the most financially stable developer in the country. You've got Kaiser, who's a top 10 developer in the country, and they've seen their debt trade from yielding 30% just a few months ago. Now it's yielding 75%. And we've, we've followed Evergrande. We've followed this for months now. Evergrande now trades at a 99% yield. Wow. So put a hundred bucks in, get 99 more. Or get nothing. Yeah, or I mean, get nothing. Yeah. yeah. The, the creditors are in essence assuming there's nothing left. Equity's wiped out. But to have creditors taken to the woodshed in this manner is shocking. I mean, you're, you're talking about billions in debt. And I know we grow insensitive to what these numbers mean, but Evergrande has $300 billion in liabilities. $300 billion in liabilities. They have more in debt than you have in terms of the, the market capitalization of Ford and GM. Ford and, and it's, it's just astounding, right? Okay. So if China goes through. By the way, 10 billion of that's coming due this year. Close to 10 billion is coming due in 2022. So it's not going to get any better. No. It, so we're talking about Xi. We're talking about China. If he were to go through a global financial crisis like we did in 2008, and he had his eye on Taiwan, okay, because he's losing his engine of power. What you're saying is a third of his GDP came from this development, right? And so his engine of growth, which is critical of all the people we talk to, the economists who are experts on China, they say that China has to grow fast. It has to keep growing hard or else it doesn't work. So let me ask you, and it was brought up in the meeting this morning, Dave, as we talked about this with the company, one of the men said, why wouldn't he just consider war as a distraction? And yesterday I had a client, uh, you, you and I both know him real well. In fact, he's been a guest on the commentary. He is a former senator and he is an expert mathematician, used to fly B-52s. He was part of a war game uh, group that would play mathematical and outcome-based war games at the Pentagon. That was part of his assignment when he was with the military. And I just asked him yesterday, I said, is Taiwan the real deal, uh, Ukraine for Putin? And he was very sober. He was very sober. He says, yeah, yeah, it seems very likely. So my question would be, and we've been talking about politics. We've been talking about credit. You know how we, you talk about the financial moves to the economic, which moves to the political, which moves to the... Geopolitical. Yeah. Yeah. I, honestly, I think I think Biden is more in, in a desperate position than Xi Jinping is. Oh. Biden's. You think he's eyeing Taiwan and going, that might be my distraction. I, I think he's I think he's eyeing Ukraine and, uh, and, uh. and creating. I mean, this is the, the, the tail that wags the dog type of scenario where, you know, Russia is the problem. What was the what was the question here? What what was it? Russia is the problem for everything. My, my son-in-law is a captain in the air force. I really don't want to hear any more about the distractions. That, that so doesn't Ukraine, sound good. yeah, Ukraine. I mean, coming into our election, I think there's a greater sense of desperation. Hmm. The, the, the reality is, Xi Jinping does not need a vote. <laughs> He's he doesn't need dominion. He doesn't need anyone's help along the way. Like there's very little concern about what the outcome for him is. An election November. of one. Yeah. 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 Because this is the 20th Congress, right? This is the National Congress, 20th National Congress in China in November. He's going after a third unprecedented 
stint as leader and it's probably third and forever mm. my guess is that once he's in he'll be like he'll be like putin right a, a permanent right. fixture just rename the position that you're <laughs> holding but it's the permanent fixture recover the couch it's the same couch that's been sitting around for a long time <laughs> um but you know she's lost his engine of growth she has a has, has a gdp growth target of five to six percent which is going to be pretty tough to pull off mm. Yeah. And, and and that certainly will put pressure on his reelection bid. It creates an internal pressure for him, a different form of calculus. Um, the question is, is he willing in the context of that complicated economic calculus, is he willing to consider something sort of along the lines? Will he be tempted by the art of redirection mm. and focusing on? I mean, nationalism is definitely there. We have nationalism on the rise. Um, economic numbers are fading, even as nationalist sentiment is picking up. And uh, you look at the timing of the Olympics, they're going to beat that drum really hard. Mm. Who shows up? Who wins? Who dominates? Who gets all the golds? Well, I mean, half the world's athletes aren't even going to show up. Mm. So you're going to have record-breaking you know, Chinese uh, results in the Olympics. More gold, silvers, and bronzes for the Chinese uh, then, I mean, it's not the BLS. You're not going to have more medals than competitors. BLS could come up with something like that. But you are going to have a lot of medals. Hmm. And, and, and it just ties the Olympics theme of nationalism. When the Ukrainian thing started becoming a problem was right after the Russian Olympics. Do you remember that? I mean, nothing happens till after the Olympics. Right. Right. But, uh, you know, I mean, again, this issue of who's under more pressure, Xi Jinping, great put, them all, put them all on the list. Yeah. Is 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 Putin under pressure today? No. What's the price of oil? Pressing eighty five dollars a barrel. Um, mm, great point. Revenue's fine. He's got the strong side of the negotiating table for Nord Stream two. I mean, he's in a great position with Europe. Uh, he's in a great position with with in in terms of his relations within the in, in the Middle East. He's in a position of strength, right? Xi Jinping. Doesn't really have a plan. The credit markets are blowing up in his face. He's got the equivalent of a 2007, 2008 credit crisis on his hands. It's happening in real time. It's going to suck the life out of the Chinese economy. So this is a surprise and it, and it leaves some wild cards with the Chinese, real wild cards. But from a political perspective, geopolitical rather, he's not in a position of weakness. And from a nationalist perspective, he's he's doing quite well. I mean, you've got Xi Thought, which is, again, this it's like a rebranded Maoism. There hasn't been this much energy around communism in decades, mm. in decades. So, and they have the Sesame credit to watch if you have the same mindset. That's yeah. that's right. So he's he's locked down controls on technology. He's going after you remember Deng Xiaoping used to say, you know, we'll let some get rich and then we'll all follow. That was the theme of opening and, and, and transfer from the 70s forward. Deng Xiaoping said they were it was OK with that. They were OK with that. This is a model of growth that allows a version of capitalism. And if there is a. A sacrificial lamb in this. I'm not sure that Taiwan is the first sacrificial lamb. They've mm. already played their hand in terms of the, the billionaire class in China. They may be eating billionaires for breakfast. I mean, the problem is that many people to feed. There's not that many billionaires. Right. So not enough. But to look for a thread that kind of runs through all of these things, I think you have to say that interventionism 
and a certain degree of desperation, in some instances a purely economic desperation, in others political, and in others still geopolitical. Um, the theme is, if you haven't seen anything yet in terms of government spending, you haven't seen anything yet in terms of the inflationary trends. So I, 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 I read almost as comedy some of the Fed chiefs saying, oh, by the end of 2022, the inflation rate will be back to 2%. Mm. Okay, and are they accounting for all of the other factors that drive the rate of inflation, which they have no control over? They had no control over supply chains. They had no control over the fiscal spend. They have no control over whether or not we have conflict with a foreign country. They have no control over the desperation of a White House looking to solidify a second term or make sure that there's solid gains and not losses in the House and Senate. Doesn't this go to why a person is listening to the commentary right now? We have to be able to think for ourselves. Yeah, the the, the outcomes are not determined. And <laughs> the, the, the checks that are going to have to be written to smooth over a number of these issues are very large checks. So does that spell higher rates of inflation as we head into 2022? We already said January is our good month. It's our best month. We redefined the weightings that go into CPI. Statistically, inflation is going away. Statistically, maybe we do hit 2%. By the end of the year. <laughs> but, but my reality, your reality, the reality of every other American who's paying bills will be quite different. The statistics don't matter. The reality faces them every day at the grocery store, the gas pump. And that's what we have to come to terms with. You've been listening to the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary. I'm Kevin Oreck, along with David McIlvaney. You can find us at McIlvaney.com, M-C-A-L-V-A-N-Y.com. And you can call us at 800-525-9556. This has been the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary. The views expressed should not be considered to be a solicitation or a recommendation for your investment portfolio. You should consult a professional financial advisor to assess your suitability for risk and investment. Join us again next week for a new edition of the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary.